Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt Densky continues our series called Follower, where we will be navigating what it means to be a fully committed follower of Jesus. Matt talks about the religious follower, looking at Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, and Simon inviting Jesus to dinner. Matt talks about three distinct ideas about religion and how we can have true intimacy with God, regardless of how much we know. We hope you enjoy this message. All right. Grab a seat, everyone. And again, welcome to Fellowship Greenville students. We are so glad you're here. My name is Matt Densky, student. Hello. Hey, Denisha. Thank you so much. Hey, Jenny-Ann, a student ministry pastor here. And I want to thank you for coming and worshiping with us and learning from God's word with us. You are loved here. We believe you have a place to belong here as well. And I just want you to know it's your first time or first time in a while or whatever. We are all about Jesus here. We believe Jesus is God and that for a certain amount of time, God put skin on and became a man and lived on this earth and showed us the way, the way back to him and the way to repair the relationship between us and him. And we love talking about Jesus and learning about Jesus and from Jesus. And so hopefully you know that already. And if you don't, you'll learn tonight. But we have been in a series called Follower over the past few weeks. And in this series, we have been looking at um, examples of what it looks like to not follow Jesus, (laughs) but in the in the veil or masquerading as if you're following Jesus. And so we've looked at a few categories of people like the consumer follower, those who it looks like they're following Jesus, but, but their motives are actually, what can I get out of this from Jesus? Not Jesus is enough for me. We've looked at the curious follower who desires certainty above all else. I'm curious. I'll talk about Jesus. I'll explore Jesus, but I'm never actually going to commit because I need certainty. We've looked at um, the 99% follower, someone who's like, yo, I'm so close. I'm, I'm basically all in. Like I've, I'm, I'm basically there, but this one thing I'm going to hold on to. And, and so we, we keep navigating like, man, it, it looks like following, but what does following actually look like according to Jesus and his teachings in his word? And tonight we're going to continue this series, Follower, and we're going to look at an, a category tonight called the religious follower. The religious follower. This is where we're going to be tonight. And this is one of my favorite things to talk about, honestly, because I think in the American church world and in the, in the, in the way that we talk, think about Uh, Christianity or what it means to be a a follower of Jesus, if you've heard that terminology. The the American Christian idea is is a bubble I just love to pop because so many times the ways we think about walking with Jesus or the ways we think about worshiping Jesus, the ways we think about uh, being a follower or belief in Jesus have these American nuances that are not really lined up with kingdom or with the scriptures. And so when I talk about a religious follower, it is someone who, who lives under the, the veil of, I do a lot of things. I, I'm religious. I, I believe God is real. I even know about God. I have information. Uh, I took a class on this, or I've heard this in chapel, or I've gone to church for X amount of years. I know who God is. I know who Jesus is. I know the lingo. I do the behavior. I have the rituals. But if you keep peeling back the layers, there's just no substance. There's no relationship there. There's no fruit in the lifestyle. It, It is entirely boiled down to the religion of it the ritual of it, and and there's nothing authentic or genuine in the relationship. And honestly, this describes, in my opinion, for whatever it's worth to you guys, this describes the large majority of people in our country who would call themselves followers of Jesus or call themselves Christians. So we're going to look at the religious follower tonight, uh, but I'm going to begin somewhere a little different. I I have a question for you guys. My question is, has anyone in the room ever uh, tried to create a prank or do a prank or whatever that just got way too out of hand, went, went way too far. You don't even know how it wound up there, but it's there. Like that's the reality. Has anyone ever found themselves in the abyss of this prank has gone too far, but there's, <laughs> but there's no abandoning it now, right? Like we've got to see this thing through. Like this is, this is the reality. Well, I want to confess to you guys, I don't love pranks. I don't love to be on the receiving end of them or the giving end of them. I, I'm just kind of like, look, I, I don't, I'm not the prank guy, but I have to confess in college, <laughs> a lot of things seemed like a good idea uh, that weren't, that, that were not. And so that's my disclaimer, okay? If you're listening on the podcast, if you're watching on YouTube, that's my disclaimer. I was young, 
Okay, I, that's not a very good excuse. Looking back on this now, I, I like scratch my head. I, I feel guilt. I've got to be honest with you. I feel bad about what we did, but we did it. There's no taking it back. So um, there, there is power in persuasion. Like when you live on a hall of, of 29 other people, you're one of 30 or you're one of 32, and someone tosses out an idea and pretty quickly 20 people rally around the idea. It's hard to not think it's also a good idea. And I found myself there. So I want to start tonight off by talking about my man, Justin Bieber. Yeah. I, say, I say my man like I actually know him. I, I don't. Uh, I want to I talk about, whoa, whoa, don't show it yet. Don't show it yet, please. I'll cue it up. I want, I want to talk about Jay Beebs. <laughs> Did you see the Valentine's card? That's not to me from him. All right, I'll explain it in a minute. Um, it's to him from me. No, no. When, when I was in college, Justin Biebs, the man, uh, was at that time, I don't think he had hit puberty yet. And so he, he looked... Yeah, he looked real young. This is his like before he got cool phase. And he had like the, that like, the like swishy mop hair. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like that was cool. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Um, he pioneered it, man. And, and he looked, he had the baby face. And he was young. You know, he, he was so cute. And there was a guy on my hall that looked remarkably like Justin Bieber. And he was this doppelganger, and we always joked about it. We were like, dang, Ken, like, has anyone told you? He's like, yes, okay, I know, I look like Biebs. Uh, Ken was in college, but for his age, was very petite, and, and he had this baby face, and he looked like Biebs. Like, the, he had the, the swishy, you know, like he had it all. And Justin, <laughs> Justin, first name basis, <laughs> um, Justin Bieber that year had made a movie and was releasing it, debuting it, called Never Say Never, Never. yeah. Classic, classic in the cinema world. Yes, nominated for many Oscars. And he was, he was releasing his movie. And for some reason, I don't know who it was. I don't know where it started, but the guys on my hall thought, oh, what a good idea it would be if we dressed Ken like Justin and convinced everybody that of all the places in this big wide world for Justin to debut his brand new movie, Never Say Never, he has chosen the Columbiana Grand in Columbia, South Carolina. <laughs> like, I wonder if we could float this idea out there. Like, it started innocent. It started small. It seemed impossible. And so no one really felt the guilt of, of truly deceiving everybody and lying, I mean, through our teeth constantly. And so this idea got floated, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, oh, man, how cool. Oh, yeah, dude, we should totally do this. Well, <clears throat> that small idea led to... We had some professional headshots done of Ken. Yeah. We, we printed out, I don't know, a couple hundred eight by 10 headshots of Ken. We made him practice Beeb's signature over and, and over and over so that his muscle memory would just go with it. We started to float the idea out there, not really knowing what would happen. And all of a sudden, to our surprise, Facebook groups were being created by complete strangers, like Justin Bieber fan pages were creating these things. Biebs is coming to Columbia. He's debuting Never Say Never in Columbia. He will be here on this date in Columbia. And you know, individually, all these ideas seemed like not a big deal, but once they got collected, it was kind of like, dude, what are we doing? Like, how, are, how do we stop this train? And we don't. And, and so at a certain point, we just had to embrace it. Um, it started, there was a radio morning show that began to talk about it, that Justin Bieber, I don't know how, I don't know how. If you ask me like, dude, how did you, I don't know. I'm just telling you around 30 guys on our hall made it our life mission for about one month to make this thing happen. It's amazing what you can do when everyone's determined. This radio show announced Bieber is coming to Columbia to debut his movie. So at this point, it's like, dude, we got to embrace this. Now, I want to show you a side-by-side. -side. Uh, let's throw this picture up just so you guys get the idea. The bottom is Justin Bieber. The top is my man, Ken. All right? So that is, that's like one of, one of the eight by tens we had printed of Ken, like leaning against a tree, like, yeah. Never say never, baby. Like... And that's his Ford signature on top. Like that's one of his practice pages. Bottom is Justin, top is Ken, okay? So we, don't, don't throw that next picture. I'll, I'll cue the next picture. So we 
we're in this thing deep, and at this point it was like, well, how do we just embrace it? Like, how do we actually do this thing? And so we decided to start feeding these fan pages on Facebook and actually like hyping this thing up. Yes, this is true. Yes, Justin will be there. I, you know, heard it from his manager. Well, I don't, I don't know what all we said. Anyway, we didn't really know what to expect. Uh, someone let us borrow their, their very, very nice car for this prank. Don't ask me why. I don't know who has the connections, but someone was like, oh yeah, you can borrow my, it was some kind of sports car or whatever. And someone volunteered to drive Ken. <laughs> and so the night of the premiere, the night of the premiere, the car pulls up to the front of, let me remind you, by the way, Columbia, South Carolina, Columbiana Grand Movie Theater on Harbison Boulevard, okay? This is not where Beebs would decide to debut his movie, but lo and behold, here he rolls up. This nice car pulls up. To our surprise, a crowd of at least 100 adoring fans are crowding this small area in front of the movie theater. And it's at this point we realize, oh, we might have messed up. Like, we, this thing has gotten way too far from us. A couple, yeah, it was at this point we realized, yeah, we've done too much. Uh, so a couple of uh, professors from our college thought the idea was hilarious and decided to dress up in suits and tag along to pose as bodyguards. <laughs> and so... So if you can imagine, this sports car pulls up, and I'm talking at a crowd of at least 100 is there screaming their lungs out, ah, Justin! They've got signs, they've gone to Walmart, okay, they've made the, the trifold, like, I'm your fan, or whatever they've got. They're bringing stuff to autograph, there's pictures and lights snapping, and we're like, dude, we, we, we've deceived a lot of people, like, how do we... <laughs> How do we live with this, uh, you know? And so the car pulls up and Ken gets out and the two, actually I think we had four, but two of them were like full grown men, jack dudes. They get out in their suits and they're like clearing the way, clearing the way. And people, it's just feeding this idea. This is Justin Bieber, I never say never, right? Like everyone's going nuts. In fact, it got so congested in, the, in, in front of the theater. Like people are bringing him um, all sorts of things to sign, pictures, hats. Someone brought like a DSLR camera, like a very nice, and it's at this point, like, do you tell them that this is a lie? Because, dude, you're about to write a fake signature on their camera. No, you don't. You just, you go with it. <laughs> I'm not proud, but it's the reality. I mean, he's signing all sorts of stuff. People are bringing him pictures and hats and cameras and babies, and he's just signing them all, man, right? Like, and it got so congested in front of the Columbiana Grand that the actual police, the actual police showed up. Yes. Yeah, like this, this prank at this point is like, how did we organize this? This is awesome and we feel so bad. The police show up and like grab Ken, uh, by, not grab, that's a little gross. They, they like put their hand on his collar and it's like Moses in the Red Sea. <laughs> like they pave a path for, let him in. Like he's there to debut his movie. And all these people start to get pushed by the real police. The bodyguards are there. I want to throw this picture up. This, this does not do it justice, okay? This does not give it, you do not get the full scope. I almost, I almost brought the video to show you. To, to just let you see the raw chaos, but the audio is so like ear piercing with the screaming going on. But this is a, a glimpse of like, all right, here's uh, Ken being escorted by his bodyguards. You see the guy in the far right. That's one of our professors. Dude rides a motorcycle across the country every year, is jacked and burly. And he's like, I want in. Like that's him in the back. <laughs> Police are coming. Like, it was insane. And, and poor Ken, man, they escorted him in the theater. And now it's like, what, what do you do? So he sat through Bieber's movie for like two hours or whatever it is, <laughs> debuting his own movie, right? I feel bad. But at some point, you just got to embrace the prank. This one got away from us, I will admit, all right? But we were kind of proud of it. Now, here's what's amazing to me. Why do I share about Ken and Bieber? Here's what's amazing to me is that all these people who showed up were his fans. Bieber's, not Ken's, they were Justin's fans. And they could probably tell you everything there is to know about Justin. They could tell you where he was born. They could tell you where he grew up. They could probably tell you the names of his pets. They could tell you his favorite ice cream flavor. They could tell you the name of his mom. They could tell you where he got his first tattoo. They could tell you all sorts of information about him. But the reality is, they didn't know him. 
Like we have this weird celebrity syndrome. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but some people just get like super loyal to celebrities they've never met. And if you say anything bad about them, it's like, I will kill you. Like, dude, you don't know them. I do. No, you don't. You know about them. And all these people there knew about Justin. And here's this person in front of them who, granted, looks a lot like Justin at at that age, but he's not Justin. And they're completely missing it. Why? Because they've convinced themselves that because they know all about Justin and we know his songs and we know his lyrics and we know the deeper meanings and we know the chaos he's been through and the struggles he's been through and we've developed empathy for this guy and we've come around him and his music and his evolution as an artist and this movie and we've heard he's in town. Like because of all that knowledge, they began to draw a very, very simple conclusion, which I will liken to religion. All right, so even before we get into the text tonight, this is my first point of the night. And it is this, religion says that knowledge equates intimacy. Religion says that knowledge equates intimacy. All these fans of Justin have convinced themselves we know him because they have knowledge about him. People do this with celebrities today. They, they have this fierce loyalty to celebrities they've never met. They'll name kids after celebrities they've never met because of all this knowledge they have about them. And somewhere along the lines, we've told ourselves knowledge equates intimacy. Ken is walking right past their noses. It's not Justin, and yet they're convinced it's Justin because they've never actually met Justin. They don't, know, they don't have a reference point to compare it to. And religion does the same thing. Religion says, the more I know, the more intimate I am. And we experience this in our relationship with God, in our relationship with Jesus. And if maybe you're unaware that you've done this or have thought this at times, but I guarantee some inkling of this has crept in to your way of thinking. Because of the knowledge I have about Jesus, I must also therefore be intimate with Jesus. I have a knowledge, therefore I have intimacy. And it's just not true. You can have knowledge and lack intimacy, but intimacy will always lead to knowledge. So there's someone in this planet that I love more than anyone else, past, present, or future, and that is my wife. I love her. But listen, it it doesn't matter how much I knew about her. This would be creepy and very stalkerish. It doesn't matter how much I knew about her. Knowledge would have never led to intimacy. But because we love each other and we have a relationship I'm learning more about her. Knowledge doesn't lead to intimacy. It's the other way around. You can claim knowledge all day, but that doesn't mean you're intimate. And yet people do this in their relationship with Jesus. In fact, before I ever knew Jesus, some of you guys know my my life story. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't live in any sense of the word like I did know Jesus. But when I began to wrestle with life after death and some bigger life questions at the age of 16, and I talked to... Uh, youth pastor, I told him this very thing. I said, look, I think God is real. What does that mean for me? See, I had a knowledge about God. I think he's real. Does that mean what? That I'm good when I die? Am I set? Am I okay? Like I was, I was navigating this idea. I have a knowledge and therefore somehow I'm building a bridge to I know him and he knows me, maybe, question mark. Religion says knowledge equates intimacy, and we love to play this game. I had an encounter with a guy one time uh, who who walked up to me and said, hey, name all 66 books of the Bible right now. I was like, "Uh, dude, I I don't know. (laughs) I'm stumped by this out of left field question, and I might need a minute. And he looked at me, and he literally said, what are they teaching you at school these days? I was like, apparently not that, dude. I I don't know. But you see what he was doing? If you can't name the 66 books of the Bible, then somehow you're missing out on the intimacy with Jesus. You, you, you see what he was doing there? I, 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 I drove down to Florida one time to teach at this church, and the student walked right up to me and said, hey, I'm such and such, and just so you know, I've read the Bible every day for 256 days. And I was like, woo, like, oh, okay, man. <laughs> that's great, and I hope that's coming out of a good motive. To be changed by the Bible, not to finish the Bible as some task to accomplish. But you see what he was doing. It's like, oh, I have this knowledge. I've been doing this thing. And this might impress the guest teacher. And I was like, okay, great. You, you, you see what he was doing. 
We do this all the time. These are some phrases I've heard. I preached the message one time. A few years later, I was preaching a similar passage, and I had a student tell me, oh, I've heard this passage already, so I don't think I'm going to come tonight. Like, oh, cool. So you're the one person in the whole world who can hear one passage of Scripture taught once, and you've got that whole thing mastered? That is awesome, man. You should be teaching. Oh, no, you're not. You're just prideful and arrogant with, with what you think you know. I mean, come on now. <laughs> Jeez. Hey, I've, I've already heard this taught once in my life. Why do I need to hear it again? Dude, like you, you hear the, the arrogance in that? I know this, therefore I have no need of it. I already have the intimacy. I already have the knowledge. I had someone tell me this one time, man, the Bible just doesn't do it for me anymore. Like I've read it and I, I think I've got it pretty much mastered. I'm looking for things beyond the Bible now. And I was like, oh, wow, really? There's some deep mysteries in there, bro. Like, yeah. I was like, all right. Knowledge equates intimacy. That's what religion teaches you. I'm glad to know my sermon is so engaging over here. I'm just kidding. Don't worry about it. Or this one I've heard a lot. Hey, man, I've been a Christian for X amount of years. You guys ever heard that one? Like you're trying to talk to someone about something? Like, dude, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I, I, like, okay, cool, man. I've been driving a car for... 20 years, but I'm not in NASCAR. Like, it, it doesn't, like, familiarity does not equate intimacy. Knowledge does not equate intimacy. And yet we play this game all the time. Religion loves to do this. This is the first point I want to talk about tonight, even before we get into the text. And, and now I do want to get into the text. So let, let's turn to Luke chapter 7. This is one of my, I, I think, one of the most beautiful stories of Jesus in the Gospels, because I think it paints this picture of Jesus that religious people have a hard, hard time with as they think about who God is and who Jesus is. So Luke chapter 7, the context of what's going on, Jesus has been doing ministry, he's been preaching, he's been traveling, his reputation is spreading. Jesus, of all the people that Jesus got um, upset with, this is God in the flesh, you might think he'd get upset with sinners. No, he doesn't. You might think he'd get upset with immoral people. No, he doesn't. Of all the people, of all the categories that he gets upset with, it's the religious people who claim all the knowledge about God. That's who Jesus gets upset with. And one of those people is a Pharisee, and his name is Simon, and he's invited Jesus to his house for dinner. And I don't think Simon invited Jesus because he's like honoring Jesus. I don't think Simon invited Jesus because he's, he's honored to have Jesus. I think Simon, this religious leader, is trying to figure out ways to trap Jesus in what he does and or says so that they have an argument against him. And, I, and I'll explain why I think that from the passage here in a minute. But Luke chapter 7, verse 36, this is where we're going to start tonight. One of the Pharisees, that's the religious leader of Jesus' day, asked him to come and eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jewish culture in this day and age, they didn't have chairs like you and I would think about uh, sitting at a dinner table. They would literally put a pillow on the ground and their left elbow would go on the pillow. They would eat with their right hand and their legs would kind of be spread out. This was very customary for Jewish culture. The table was low. So you kind of recline at the table and eat with your hands or sit up and kind of sit crisscross applesauce <laughs> and be at this low table, right? And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner I love Luke's description here, man. Like the gravity of this dinner shifts within one verse in this story, and I love it. This prominent religious leader has invited Jesus, a traveling rabbi, a teacher, to be his guest for dinner. Not because he likes Jesus and not because he's honored to have Jesus. I'll, I'll show why in a minute. But because he's trying to trap Jesus. Jesus comes to his house. He sits down at the table as is customary. And in an instant, this woman comes in. Look at, look at Luke's description of this woman. A woman of the city. Sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? And even 2,000 years later, you probably already know what that means. A woman of the city who was a sinner. So this is, this is a way the biblical writers would describe a prostitute. A woman of the city, someone who, who sells her services to men. She is a sinner. This is Luke's description of this woman. Now, you may ask, well, how did she get in? Like, dude, to be a religious leader seems kind of prominent. Jesus, 
I mean, his reputation preceded him. Maybe, you know, like he had the VIP status and maybe he got, how did this woman get into this home? Well, in, in that day, if, if you were um, a, a religious leader and you had a traveling rabbi or a rabbi over to your home, it was normal for people to come in uninvited. That was very normal. It was, it was almost like, it's like Bible time Netflix, all right? It was like, yo, what is the rabbi going to teach on? And what is the religious leader going to teach on? And I want to see this. And so people would come in and literally stand on the edges of the wall. They wouldn't sit at the table because they weren't invited, but they would stand on the edges of the wall and peer into the conversation because they would figure, man, there's, some, there's bound to be some nuggets of, of wisdom in this thing. There's bound to be some really good stuff. Maybe we can come and watch. Or if, if the owner of the home had a courtyard, an outdoor courtyard within the the home area, people would come and, and observe that. So it wasn't abnormal for uninvited guests to come, but if you were uninvited, you would go and stand on the wall, or you would stand out of the way, and you would just look in. To, to, to bust through the scene, which is kind of what Luke paints the picture, for this woman to just kind of like come into the scene and to approach the dinner table was unheard of. She would have never been allowed in this home, even as an uninvited guest, she would have never been allowed in this home in a thousand years. And I love the picture that Luke is painting. You have the religious leader of the day, or one of them, Simon, and his prominent setting in his prominent home, and he's abided by the words of God for his entire life. Like this dude has knowledge. To be a Pharisee, to be where Simon is at, this Pharisee, you would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized by the age of 13, and you would have had the rest of the Old Testament memorized. I'm not talking like, oh, I kind of know where that verse is. No, you would have had it memorized word for word by the age of 18. Old Testament, entire thing. Let that sink in a minute. Most of us don't even know the names of the books of the Old Testament. No judgment, I'm just saying. And if you were gonna be a religious leader in this culture, you had to be so biblically proficient, you had the entire Old Testament memorized by the age of 18. Simon is there, so he has knowledge and he's convinced himself of that principle. Knowledge equates intimacy. I know God. I know the ways of God. I know the principles of God. I know the, I know the heart of God. I'm fit to discern right from wrong. I am religious after all. And this woman of the city, a sinner, comes into the scene and disrupts this dinner. And look at what she does to Jesus. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. This is very expensive. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, this is unusual, right? Like you're reading this, you're like, dude, I, what is happening? This is a very awkward thing to read. It would have been very awkward to be a part of this. And you're right. So, so somehow, we don't know where she's heard Jesus, we don't know the connection, but somehow she has heard Jesus teaching somewhere, or she's heard about Jesus, and she's gotten into a life of prostitution. And before we go and make all the assumptions we can about it, if you've ever done any research about prostitution, then you probably have come across fairly quickly, most prostitutes did not choose it because they thought it would be a great <laughs> vocation. It's got good health benefits. no. They got into it out of necessity to provide money for their loved ones or to survive. Those of you who have been with me to the Dominican Republic, you've seen it firsthand. The Dominican has the highest teenage prostitution rates of any island in the Caribbean. You've seen the girls on the streets, and you know why they're in that lifestyle. They started dating a guy. He promised to be a good husband and a good dad. She got pregnant. He bailed because he's terrified. She has no one to provide for her and support her. And she's got this little baby now because dude was a coward and left home. And she's trying to figure out how to do it. And she gives her body away. We don't know the context of this woman. Simon, the Pharisee, thinks he does. He thinks he's got it all figured out because she's a sinner. But Jesus looks at her with compassion it's why she comes onto the scene already crying. She has some notion somewhere in her idea of Jesus, of who he is, that he would look at her with dignity and value and give her worth and compassion, not judgment. He looks past her sins and he looks at the person. 
You see this with Jesus over and over and over again in his interactions with people. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, hated this about Jesus. Luke 15 begins in this way. Hey, you eat with sinners. Like they, they come to Jesus with that accusation. Man, don't you know you sit down and break bread with sinful people? And Jesus is like, duh. <laughs> That's the whole point, man. But for the religious person, there's no category of this. This woman comes in and she stands behind Jesus and she's already weeping and she stands at his feet and she begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and, and kissed his feet. By the way, to, for a woman in this culture to let down her hair in front of a man like this, culturally, it, if, if you were married and you did this, if you let down your hair in front of another man, it was grounds for divorce in this culture. It was considered so intimate for a woman to let down her hair. So this woman has cast aside all cultural shame. Like, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what category you put me in. This is Jesus and I'm coming to Jesus. She lets down her hair and begins to cleanse his feet with her hair. And she took the alabaster flask of ointment and she anointed his feet. Now, look at verse 39. This is the response of the religious person. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, <clears throat> you hear the ego? You hear the arrogance of religion? He said to himself, so in other words, he's thinking in his mind, if this man were a prophet, he would if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. That word touching there in the original language, that word touching is like this intimate um, sexual idea. Was the woman trying to be sexual with Jesus? <laughs> no. But look at what the religious person is doing. He can't think beyond a category of where he's already designated her to be. Because of her life and profession, anytime she touches a man, it must be for this. It's got to be for this motive. And no, it wasn't. See, religious people, religious people cannot look past the practices of life to see the posture of heart. They can't. Why? Because, this is our second point for the night, religion loves to create the gap of categories. Religion loves to create the gap of categories. In other words, I'm good, you're bad. Because of my life, I'm good. Because of your life, you're bad. We love the categories and we love the gap because it makes us feel even better. We do it all the time, don't we? You may not think we do, but we do. It's funny how gracious we can be with like this certain demographic of people. We'll be gracious and compassionate and have empathy. Come on, man. Think about their life circumstances. Think about how they got there. Man, let's, let's show grace and love. And then simultaneously with this demographic of people, we do the complete opposite. We'll have judgment and condemnation and no empathy and no compassion. And we don't see the context of their life. We do it all the time. In fact, I, I would argue that, that one of, if not the major deterrent for people being captivated and in love with Jesus is not Jesus, but those who claim to know Jesus. I would say most people don't want anything to do with Jesus, not because of who Jesus is or what he taught, but because of those who claim to know him and how they act. And I would say that because I've had conversations with enough people over the years to know most people who have a context of church background have church hurt or church trauma due to Christians who in the name of Jesus did very unkind things and now they want nothing to do with the whole thing. Think about how in the past few weeks Christians have postured themselves in response to certain things going on in culture. Now, I do think one of, one of the responsibilities of knowing the light and knowing the truth is being able to discern light from darkness and truth from lie. And I think those who would claim to know Jesus ought to be able to do that, to have discernment. But another role of ours is to also understand how to have grace and truth simultaneously. 
John says in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 14 and 117, Jesus came full of grace and truth. So he was graciously truthful and truly gracious at all times. Both and. Did you see how many people responded to little Nas X with his shoe? In a condemning, judgmental way. I'm being serious. Now, I'm not advocating a Satan shoe. I, personally, I think that's ridiculous. But I, but I also understand his context and lifestyle enough to have compassion on how he got to that decision. I'm not saying the shoe was right. I'm saying how we responded to that was incredibly wrong as Christians. In fact, little Nas X came out with a statement. I thought it was profound. He said, when I was young and I was in church, you guys condemned me to hell, and now you're surprised that I went there? I thought, Phew. We don't understand compassion because we love categories. I mean, I would never create a Satan shoot. That's ridiculous. Okay, but what about some other sins in your life? Well, it's not the same. No, it's not the same in terms of like culture and impact and consequence, but there's a moral code and we've all fallen short of that and we're all in the same boat in terms of our need for grace in Jesus. So could we come around that idea that we all need Jesus and that just because I don't do these things doesn't make me a better person? But religion says, no, 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 no. Man, I've memorized Bible verses. I know the names of the 66 books. I've gone to church X amount of years. I've walked with Jesus this long. I'm not like those people. What? The Pharisee, Simon, let's go back to these verses here. Simon says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now here's the irony. Simon said that to himself, accusing Jesus of not being a prophet, and Jesus, somehow knowing his thoughts, <laughs> answers his thoughts. I love that, man. If this man's a prophet, he wouldn't do it. Jesus is like, yo, can I speak to that? <laughs> I love that, man. Verse 40, Jesus answering, answering what? His thoughts. He says to him, Simon, I got something to say to you. And Simon said, well, say it, teacher. I mean, that's the whole reason I've invited you. I want you to say something so that I know how to trick you and trap you. Jesus responds in this way. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That was a currency in, the Old Test, in, the, in this time period. One owed 500 denarii. One denarii is about a day's worth for a laborer. So 500 is about a year and a half of money. If we just kind of put some average salary for the American into that, it's around 85,000 or so. So someone owed $85,000 and the other owed 50 denarii, which would equate to about 8,500. So one owns about 85,000, the other 8,500. Neither could pay, verse 42. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. So this debtor, this money lender, is very gracious. And he realizes, you both owe me. You owe me about 10 grand. You owe me 85 grand. Neither of you can pay due to your life circumstances. I'm just going to cancel the debt entirely. Don't worry about it. It's a very gracious money lender. You would remember that. If you, were, if you like, took out a, a mortgage on a house and you just got in bad, like if you just fell out of sorts and you were in debt, 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 and the bank calls you and was like, yeah, we see here you owe like, ooh, two million. Let's just wipe it clean. What do you say? You, you would know, like you would talk about that. You'd remember that. It'd be significant. It'd be life-changing to you. Jesus looks at Simon and says, he canceled the debt of them both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Or in other words, which one will understand the gift more? Which one will appreciate it more? This religious man, not a hard question, answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt, the one who owed 85,000 as opposed to 8,500. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I love that phrase. Because this would have been a woman that would have been invisible to men like Simon. Or if visible, only for the target of judgment. And Jesus draws his eyes. Do you see her? I'm talking see her. Do you see her? I entered your house 
and you gave me no water for my feet. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, it was customary in this culture, if you had a guest over to your home, to allow him to wash his feet. They wore sandals, man. They're traveling for miles and miles. They got dusty, dirty feet, and they're walking on roads that animals also walk on. And so there's fecal matter everywhere. Like, Feet were nasty in, in, in Bible times, and it was customary and, and mandatory before you break bread, before you eat, to wash your feet if you're a guest in someone's home. And typically the homeowner, if I really wanted to honor you, I'd wash your feet myself. The normal status was I have a house servant who would wash your feet for you, and the very least was I'd provide you a bowl of water and you do it yourself. That's like the lowest level of honor you can give. Simon, the Pharisee, didn't touch Jesus's feet and had no one else do it and didn't provide him water. Jesus tells him, I came to your home and you did nothing. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. What's he talking about there? Again, custom culture was, if I invite you to my home and we're the same status, we kiss each other on the cheek. That's like a normal thing in that culture. If you're a higher status than me, I kiss your hand. And Jesus is saying, you gave me nothing. You didn't even kiss me, which would be the, the equivalent of kind of like you host a dinner party, you throw a dinner party and you invite all your friends over and everyone arrives, everyone arrives, everyone arrives. And then the last person, ding dong, rings the doorbell and you open the door and you see him and you go, and you just walk back. You kind of allow them to open the door themselves and come in. It'd be incredibly rude, right? Like, why would you invite me if that's how you're going to treat me? In this culture, it was the same. You gave me no kiss. You didn't kiss my cheek. You didn't kiss my hand. And yet, look at what Jesus says. She has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. Again, culture, customary. If you wanted to refresh your guests, you would anoint their head with a, a scented oil, olive oil with some scents in it or something like that, just to refresh them, just to kind of you know, smell good, right? Like, oh man, that's nice, that's nice. It's like, um, what do they call it? Uh, essential oils, thank you. <laughs> thank you, bro. It's like doTERRA, but like Bible times, right? And Jesus is like, dude, you didn't give me anything. And yet, and yet, she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, let, let, me, let me go ahead and tell you something. The, the ointment that she used would have been one of two things. It would have been this vessel that was, has never been opened before, and the only way to use it is to break the neck of it. It's like a one-time use deal. When I plan to use it, I'm going to use the whole thing. It was very expensive. I'm talking like, like this is her livelihood, this, this perfumed oil. Or it would have been something she wore around her neck, uh, a small clay jar that she would have used drop, one drop at a time, in her profession. So as I'm about to be with a man or lay with a man as a prostitute. I want to smell good. This is part of the package. I'm going to use one drop at a time so that I'm smelling good for him. Either way, this was her livelihood. In other words, her pouring out the entire thing is her symbolic gesture of saying, I'm done with this life and I'm now following Jesus. I'm giving up my lifestyle to follow Jesus. The amount of money she dumped on his feet was everything she had, literally. This thing was so expensive. You didn't anoint my head with an inexpensive olive oil, but she, that's kind of what Jesus is saying here, she has anointed my feet with ointment, a perfumed, a scented perfume. Therefore, I tell you, verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Or in other words, she understands how much she's been forgiven. But he is, who is forgiven little loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were with him at the table began to say among themselves, well, who is this that can forgive sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now this, is, this brings me to the third category of what religious people love to do. This is what Simon was doing. Religion is blind to its own needs. Simon was sitting at this dinner, watching this promiscuous woman touch Jesus, which he categorized already. Oh, she's touching him, man. Of course, she's a prostitute. This has got to be sexual. What is she doing? If he were a prophet, he'd know. Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, I got a story for you. Two people owe a lot of money. One owes a lot, a lot. They're both forgiven. Which one understands it more? Which one loves more? Which one appreciates it more? Simon says, well, the one who is forgiven more. Jesus says, you're right. She's been forgiven much, so she loves much. 
I came into your home, you didn't even treat me like a guest. You disrespected me. You didn't give me water for my feet. You didn't give me a kiss for my face or my hand. You gave me no oil, and she has done all those. She has treated me far better than you have, and I'm your guest. Simon couldn't see past the category he's already placed her in. This is the third thing religious people love to do. Religion, religion is blind to its own needs. Simon missed the whole point of this story. Was Simon a sinner? Was this Pharisee a sinner? Not a rhetorical question. Yes or no? Yes. Was this woman a sinner? Yes. Are you a sinner? Yes. Am I a sinner? Ow, that hurt. Someone answered really quickly. That really hurt, dude. I'm going to think about that later. Yes, I am. The point of what Jesus is trying to do for Simon is like, dude, you've put her in a category of sinner because she's chosen a lifestyle or maybe she's just gotten into this lifestyle due to necessity and you can't see past it and you, bro, are a sinner. But religion comes along and and creates this system where it's like, well, I know I have mistakes and I know I'm sinful, but I'm not that sinful, right? Like the categories of good and bad. And then we, we even become blind to our own needs. We can't see past our own needs. Hear me on this. I think religion, toxic religion, is the blind spot of our relationship with God. We don't know how much we need grace because we've convinced ourselves we're not that bad. And therefore we begin to develop arrogance that actually creates categories and creates the gap which we live in because we're so blind to our own need for Jesus. And then we actually begin to convince ourselves, well, because there's a gap and because I'm not that bad and because I do know all these things and I've gone to church X amount of years and I, I, I do go to a, 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 you know, a school where I hear this every day or I, or I have grown up in a Christian home or, or I have memorized this amount of verses or whatever, we begin to think because I have knowledge, I also have intimacy. I am a pretty good person. Religion bases its merits on knowledge, on ritual, on judgment on being blind to oneself. Jesus was trying to help Simon understand this, and he completely missed it. And yet the woman, this prostitute who burst into this dinner party, is the hero of this story. It's amazing. Real quick, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, says this. Now Adam and Eve, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now this is, a, whoa, dude, what the, how did we get to this verse? <laughs> like, wait, oh man, I get it. That's a, that's a hard turn right there. No, listen. This Hebrew word, knew, Adam knew Eve, is about sex. Yes, I said it. Okay. It's about sex. He lay with her. He knew her. It's the Hebrew word yada. Yada. And it means this, to know and be completely known. The Hebrew word yada means to know and be completely known. Now, what's interesting about this is in the Hebrew language, there's many words that describe intimacy and there's words that describe sexual intimacy specifically. And it's not yada. They could have chosen any words. And yet, for the first story in the Bible where a man has sex with a woman and is known and completely known, they chose yada. And you're like, dude, how did we get here (laughs) from what you were talking about? To know and be completely known. Now, here's what's interesting. All throughout the Old Testament, and I just want to go to one example, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this happening. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Let's go to verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Every time the word know is used in Psalm 139, guess what it is? Yada. It's the same idea. Adam knew his wife, Yada, to know and be completely known. And, and the other Psalm 139 is describing a relationship with God. And it happens all over the Old Testament, by the way, where the same Hebrew word is used, yada, you know me, you know me. And look, I'm not going to lie to you. It, it is weird at first to, to begin to understand a relationship with God at a level of intimacy and, and knowing and understanding that's also described, used to describe an earthly uh, sexual um, marriage coming together, being woven together, knitted together due to that intimacy. It's hard to be, whoa, man. I, 
But if you can begin to think about your relationship with God in this context, that you are known and completely known, and that God desires you to know him and completely know him, this yada idea, it will entirely redefine the way you think about God and Jesus. The way a man and a woman come together through the covenant of marriage, this, this, this fusing of souls, this yada, to be known and completely known is how our relationship with God is described in the Old Testament time and time again. And so we go back to the dinner scene with Jesus where there's these three characters. One is God in the flesh. One is this super religious person who thinks they know God because of what they know about God. And the other is this woman who's only recently begun to hear Jesus teach and is convinced that he's God and is convinced that he can forgive and is convinced that he can offer her a way out of her life. And she decides, I'm going to go and be known by him and know him. Simon the Pharisee was convinced, I already know it. I already know God because I have knowledge. This woman's a sinner. I'm in a different category. This woman's wrong. I'm righteous because of what I know. And one of the questions we have to ask as we read this story is who am I in this story? It's really, really easy to think of yourself as not the religious one. Because you're like, cool, man, and like you're open to this and you embrace that and you don't speak out against this. But we all have these tendencies where we love to create the categories. We condemn others because they don't fit within where we stand. We look down on others. We love the gap. We love the distance. We take pride in what we know about certain things. And we elevate ourselves and then we're blind to our own needs. We do this. And Jesus is in the middle of this dinner party and this prostitute bursts in and he elevates her and makes her the hero of the story. And he's looking at the religious dude being like, dude, don't you see Who are you in this story? Are you the religious person who takes pride in what you think you know and therefore you think you have intimacy? But is it yada? Do you know God? Completely know God? And are you completely known by God? Do you have that level of intimacy in your relationship with God? Or are you the woman who understands your need and understands your sin and comes to Jesus understanding his compassion and forgiveness and grace Please do not allow your knowledge about Jesus to convince you that you actually know Jesus. That was me when I was 16. I think God is real. Is that enough? Don't allow yourself to be duped. Don't allow yourself to have Jesus right under your nose, but because of everything you think you know about him, you miss him entirely. Are you known, completely known? Do you know God and completely know God? That's what Jesus offers to be a follower of him. Where are you in this story? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the example you set. You welcome us as broken, sinful people. All throughout the gospels, time and time again, those who are far from God, you come near. And those who think they're close to God, you try to open up their eyes to help them see the truth. We're all in need. We all have need of grace. Knowledge and lifestyles and categories don't elevate us above others and certainly don't make us better. It doesn't save us. It doesn't mean we know you. It doesn't mean we're known by you. Religion is the blind spot of our relationship with you. Would you purge us of toxic religion Would you help us understand the need of grace and compassion and forgiveness for ourselves and for others and meet others with the love and truth of Jesus Christ? May we come to you and pour out our lives and leave behind our sinful lifestyles to fully follow you as this woman did. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.